My name is Jeffrey Sachs. I'm the director of ATID. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to this, our 10th annual winter conference. Difficult to believe, Rabbi Bravender. We've been doing it for 10 years. Um, uh, uh, just a few miscellaneous announcements. Tomorrow evening, Rabbi Carmi, Rabbi Carmi is here, of course, as our, as our scholar in residence. Uh, for an intensive period of teaching and tutoring and mentoring uh, with our ATID Fellows program and with the ATID faculty. Tomorrow evening at 8 p.m. he'll be delivering a shiur on Parshat HaShavua in English at OL Nechama on Rehov Chopin in Yerushalayim. You're all, you're all most welcome to join us uh, there. Rabbi Shalom Karmi is well known to many of us, uh, certainly those of us who are his students, as a professor of Tanakh, philosophy, and Jewish thought at Yeshiva College and at Stern College. To a larger circle, he's known as the author and editor of very many important essays and volumes, including the Orthodox Forum series, including Rabbi Soloveitchik's writings on tefillah, and of course his own, uh, his own set of essays, uh, most of which are available in a digital library at our website at teed.org, a, a set of essays that grapple with issues and topics that are, I think, so close to the hearts of, of all of us here. I, I would wager that there's probably no one here who hasn't read at least something Rabbi Karmi has written in one of his various venues, including the journal tradition of which he is now, of which he is now the editor. Some of these books and journals are available for sale. I'm sure you saw as you came in from Pomerantz Bookseller, and he'll be he'll be uh, there after the evening as well, including uh, is Rabbi Karmi's monograph, a letter to a philosophical dropout from Orthodoxy, which we at Atid were proud to publish a few years ago. We also have available upstairs a CD of Shiurim, Moadei Chaim, uh, uh, audio Shiurim on the cycle of the Jewish holidays by our own, uh, by our own, by our own Rabbi Bravender. Um, Rabbi Bravender joins us this evening uh, in, his, in his customary role as uh, respondent, uh, provocateur, uh, interlocutor uh, for, uh, with, with, uh, with, uh, with Rabbi Karmi. I invite everyone to visit our and his new initiative, Web Yeshiva, webyeshiva.org, which is a fully interactive, online, live, real-time uh, yeshiva offering video shiurim. Uh, since we started the program a number of weeks ago, we've drawn hundreds of people from throughout the throughout the world, joining us in real live shiurim that take place over the internet. And it's really something to see and to get a taste of. So please do, do visit us at, webyeshiva, at webyeshiva.org. Serving as moderator this evening is our friend, Professor Susan Handelman of bar University and a member of our own professional advisory board uh, at Atid, someone who's been so, uh, so helpful to us over these years, uh, over these 10 years. Uh, at Atid, we're looking forward to the release of her new book, which will be titled Love at the End, the Teacher-Student Relation in Jewish Thought and Contemporary Theory, which is soon to be published from the University of Washington Press. That is a book that 
if we had it already, would probably contribute a lot to our conversation, our conversation tonight. After Rabbi Kwame's presentation and Rabbi Bravender's, Rabbi Bravender's response, we'll have time for, for some of your questions and comments, um, either from the microphones on either side, or if you'd like to, during the, during the presentations, on, uh, on an index card, which, uh, which Davino will pass out if you're interested, you could jot down your thoughts and pass them down to Davino, who will be sitting up here in the front, and she'll pass them to Susan, who will or will not try to get them onto the agenda for the conversation, for the conversation after, the, uh, after the discussions. B- by way of introduction to our topic, the challenge of fostering lifelong religious growth, I, I would just say that when I returned to Yeshiva College after studying for a year at Yeshiva HaMishtar at, at Bravinders, what we used to call Bravinders, I followed the advice of one of my rebbeim from the yeshiva who said, if you're going off to yeshiva college, you really ought to seek out Rabbi Shalom Karmi. And I did this by registering for his, one of his classes, for intro. Some of the people that sat there uh, with me almost 20 years ago are, are here tonight. But I also did it by seeking him out in his other classroom, or his other haunts, as he's wont to say, the Yeshiva University cafeteria, the fifth floor of the library, in these many years since my Aliyah, uh, to maintain that conversation through, through email and through the occasional meeting whenever, whenever possible. With great fortune, this ongoing conversation, uh, the, the ongoing wrestling with matters of matters of import to those that want to be religiously alive and spiritually, intellectually, emotionally engaged with, with the religious, religious life to grow as, Shalom puts it, thinking religious beings. That initiation into the conversation allowed me entree to his mishpacha halomedet what he calls the, the learning family, his, his family of friends and Talmidim and Talmidim Chavirim. And I can only reflect that personally it's been a great skut these 20 years for me and one of the great contributors to my own lifelong religious growth, which is our topic for the evening. So ladies and gentlemen, I give you Rabbi Shalom Karmi on the challenge of fostering lifelong religious growth. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, it's my great schut that I have many outstanding Talmudim over the years with whom Rabbi Sachs is very far from being the least and it's important that I maintained connection with him over the years as with many others. Uh, the uh, point of departure, theoretical level, for what I want to discuss tonight, is uh, a very simple point, which should be obvious once it's explained, but it's 
philosophy, a lot of things are not obvious until you actually think of them. Uh, many of us make the assumption that a mitzvah, a good act, uh, is the same if you're performing it at the age of 18 or at the age of 52. You know, the lulav is the same lulav. The words of Shmonasve are the same words. And you think that you go year after year, you're doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, you think about many secular ethical theories, they certainly operate the same way. Utilitarian point of view, preponderance, pleasure over pain. Either you're doing it, you're not doing it, you measure it a certain way. Uh, you read, you're a Kantian, you're a Rawlsian. Again, you're thinking in terms of a certain kind of moral entity, kind of moral agent, and you measure every act the same way, whether you're 25 or whether you're 40. Uh, I believe that this way of thinking about the world is very often misleading. That very often we want to understand the moral value of a person's life. I'm already speaking about not the idea of your actions, but your life as a whole trajectory. Uh, that when you're doing it, where you're doing it, uh, is a long story, and that how that story unfolds is extremely important. Uh, in Yahadut, if not in Halacha, but at least in Tanakh, we talk sometimes keep going through life, but you also have a Kohelet. Uh, remember the Creator when you're young, because when you're older, it will be a lot harder, you're older, you'll be busy, you'll be tired. Uh, you look at the small letters in the Beur Agra and without a magnifying glass you wouldn't know the difference between the Dalit and the Reish. Uh, you have to do all those. It gets harder and therefore do things as much as possible when you're young. Chaparain. Do things when you're younger. Uh, but again, that sense of what it's like to live through a life and to be 40 and remember what it's like to be 20, to relate those ages to each other, uh, is a challenge that we don't always think about as being a central theoretical challenge. I want to look at it from two different perspectives. One, the educational one in terms of relation between teacher and student, where usually the teacher is older students. This morning I met a uh, former student of mine who was my age, first year I was teaching, but usually they're younger and with the years they get younger and younger, I remain the same age. Uh, it's, very, it's one issue in terms of how we, we teach and how we learn. And then I'll move on to another topic which I think uh, most people thought I would be talking about. Namely, what do you do in terms of your own learning, in terms of your own growth, leaving aside your role as a teacher, as a student, you know, how do you keep on going after you leave yeshiva? And these two issues are connected, but I'm treating them somewhat separately. 
uh, start in terms of the question of the relationship to students, the, the, the role of a teacher. Uh, here's an anecdote that focused my mind on some of these points. I'm presenting in a somewhat exaggerated form. Uh, the people who set up this meeting uh, were much more sophisticated than I'm making them out to be. But some years ago, I was asked to speak to a group of educators. Uh, and I gathered some of the people involved uh, had worked out the following idea. That essentially, the uh, relationship of teachers and students in the class is one of equality. They are both equally looking for truth. They are equally searching out certain things. They're working together, and the teacher should not be the authority figure who knows it all while the students have to sit there and listen. Uh, to the people who approached me, my sense was this was very clear to them. They were absolutely certain about this. The only problem they had was, does it apply to Lumidic Kodesh as well, given that in Lumidic there is a more authoritarian caste. They thought that uh, from the point of view of Lumidic Kodesh, you can't simply ask a professor of education. Uh, you have to ask some other kind of person. And it occurred to them that uh, who better to ask than somebody, what greater qualification would be than the fact that at some time, I had passed qualifying exams on Hilchot Basvachalov and Tarovet and Ed Smicha, so that made me, uh, gave me insight into these matters. Uh, on my part, I had a difficulty entering into the subject. On the one hand, I had sympathy with the notion that a classroom should not be a uh, place of hectoring and of uh, indoctrination. On the other hand, it seemed to me that a teacher really does know more than the students and that there is this transmission that's supposed to go on. Uh, to put it very bluntly, I take somebody who is my student now in a freshman course and if you're assuming that the student and I are more or less equal and then, in 10 years, we're also going to be equal in the same way. If there's no change in 10 years, and some, one of us is doing something very wrong. And the whole idea is that you start from a certain perspective, and then your relationship to student, as a colleague, or as a graduate is going to be different than it was in the beginning. And that means that the equality is earned rather than assumed. So what was it going to say? You know, tell them I don't agree with your whole be uh, chutzpah, pay me for it. Uh, but on the other hand, the idea that you have to build some kind of transgenerational bridge, that you can't simply, one side, throwing knowledge at the other, the way somebody throws a stone at a window, uh, that also appealed to me. Uh, what I came to realize is that there is a point of meeting in this dialectic. Uh, I'm an adult, the students are much younger than I, and they know less, they have less experience. But I was once a child, I have a good memory, and 
If the idea is to activate students, to make students feel they're not passive recipients, one thing that you may want to communicate is that when you're studying, and now you may feel passive and feel that teacher has a knowledge and you're gaining, you're picking up the knowledge, the realization that that situation is a changeable one, that even when you're a high school student or college student, this is not the way things will always be. That the teacher was once a child and the teacher had ways of thinking about the subject which changed over the years. And that the student should look forward and be aware that how you're thinking right now is only the first stage. That's an important insight. If you want to use jargon, it's an empowering insight. It does not enable the student to say, I know more than you do. But it does enable the student to realize, you know, the teacher, male teacher, puts on his pants one leg at a time the same way that I do, and I don't know the feminine equivalent of that, and work it out on your own. That is a very important insight. And you can build around that. And as I thought about it, I realized that I do this. And I do tell people, you know, this is why I thought when I was younger, and this is what I think now. Uh, but that means understanding that human life is temporal in that way. That part of getting older is not only that you know more, it's that you will know differently, you'll experience the world, world differently. Not so long ago, a very intelligent Talmud uh, wrote to me about the satisfaction in certain areas of his religious intellectual growth. The letter as a whole is fascinating and give a whole lecture about that letter. Uh, but one of the points that he made was that he feels, in terms of tefillah, you know, he has adopted a more or less, we call it right wing, you know, he dresses, wears a hat, jacket, and so forth. And he shuffles and so on. And, you know, one day he says to me, you know, he saw a close friend of his shuffling while he was talking over the phone. And he realized the same shuffling is davening and talking over the phone, which means that shuffling during the davening is not such a tremendous thing. And he's aware that even if you die a long shmuna yesterday, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a deeper understanding. He was bothered by this. One of the things I said to him is, you want to solve that problem, I don't know if you can do it overnight. Part of what goes into davening is living. You worry about the illness of a child. You take care of a, of a parent. Uh, you worry about your own professional advancement, what you're doing with yourself, the passage of time. Uh, 15-year-old kids don't say Shema Koleinu and they don't say uh, the same way that I do. It's not because I have a higher IQ than they do. It's because I've lived longer. And it's important for you as a young man of 22 to understand that that's part of what life is about and will affect your davening right now to know 
that it's not simply a matter of shuffling harder or pressing harder or wearing a blacker jacket or a uh, more acceptable hat. Or even as he was suggesting, maybe if I read, if I took college more seriously, I read more poetry that that would give me, which I think might be a good suggestion. But there is that issue of life going through a person. You find formulations, uh, you know, the Rav, think very often when the Rav talks about how different generations communicate with each other, and, and for the Rav, what brings generations together is the act of Komotoro, the fact that the same text that the 75-year-old man is reading, the 20-year-old is reading, you read it together, suddenly the gap of generations is overcome, and there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, I was reading recently, I don't know many of you people, does the name Gene Shepard mean anything to anybody? Uh, radio personality, uh, I can't say too much about him right now, want of time. Uh, he's a person who uh, has now uh, begun to attract scholarly attention. Uh, and uh, he talked late night on the radio and he, he he told stories about his fictional or real childhood and there's an interview that he gave where he said I talk of my childhood because that creates commonality among people because everybody was a child now, of course this didn't happen with Torah he didn't teach Torah stories were very different types of stories uh, what he also added which may be more interesting is that most grown-ups have forgotten they ever were children. They can't put themselves back in that frame of mind. And if you can't do that, then you will have difficulty doing what I'm talking about, which is to enable the younger person to anticipate what it will be like to get older. So this is a point which I think practically, if those of us who teach, those of us who talk to people, those of us who engage in self-examination, it's a point that I recommend very much to your attention. Uh, like all panaceas, it doesn't solve all the problems people have in the classroom, it can even create new ones. Uh, not all teachers uh, were children, or in many cases their experience of childhood with all due respect to Gene Shepard, were so different from that of the people they're dealing with that grounds communication may be difficult, that everybody is articulate about these matters. Uh, again, if you overdo it, take overdoing anything, it can create parity. Students say, oh, he's coming in here, he's talking about Shaila. When I was 15 years old, this is why I understood this Rashi, and now I understand it actually differently and uh, it becomes a, a uh, pedagogical tick which in the end you know, students can be very cruel sometimes and they can parody it. And sometimes it can impede coverage. You, know, you, you end up having all the schmoozing and you don't get on with covering material. But it's something that I, I do want to recommend to your uh, consideration in life and in teaching in the overlap between the two. The second issue that I want to raise is, again, a more conventional issue. Uh, people go to school a certain number of years. During that time, 
uh, ostensibly their major efforts are going into their schooling. Sometimes it's not true, since people do their full-time studies and some of the fugitive hours are stolen away from other activities. Uh, but it seems serious students are putting in a lot of hours a day in their study. Uh, they have a certain amount of guidance. They're in yeshiva. And then when you leave that cocoon and you get older, your time is limited. Sometimes your energy gets limited also you get older. You know, physically, you can't always do the same things when you're 50 that you did when you're 25. The number of days you can go without sleep is smaller at my age than it was uh, 25 years ago. I want to stay up all night. I, have to, I can't do it two or three nights in a row. Uh, and if you're busy doing other things, and you're pursuing your intellectual life and learning whatever in your spare time or even a significant amount of spare time it's harder for you to be thorough you want to learn Gemara you know Gemara is sometimes very very hard to accomplish anything in units of less than a couple of hours of intensive work and if you skip a day then you lose track of where you were and in secular pursuits as well, you, you start reading a novel, you stop at page 50, you go back, and you don't remember the characters' names anymore, you don't know what to do for a living. Uh, you know, if they're Russian characters, you know, Russian novels, you don't know all their, uh, their patronymics anymore. Uh, and it's under those circumstances you very often work hastily because you're in a hurry, you feel that you don't have any time, so you don't work with the kind of patience you once had. Your horizons are closer, or are, are, are more closed. Uh, sometimes you desperately start doing new things and you don't follow up on them. Other times you feel depressed because you know that doing something new is that going to work out well? That if you, you didn't learn Taharot when you were younger, you know, the key may have turned on you. And maybe you, so all kinds of things that limit us as we get older. And I don't know if our educational system uh, spends that kind of time thinking about what are you going to do? Someday, I tell people in terms of doing research on their own where I feel, I feel that they're relying on me too heavily to help in research. I say, look, you know, someday either I'll be dead someday or you may graduate someday. And, you know, with email you can say it's, you can keep on going that way as Sachs pointed out. But, uh, you know, someday have to, we don't always prepare people for the Seder Hayom when they have more limited time and it's no longer the classical framework of the classroom. Uh, I'll give you three solutions that are out there. One solution, which I went to a discussion with Rosh Hashiva, 
who did think very much about that issue and spoke for a long time about it and in effect his approach boiled down to not leaving Yeshiva the Haredi world is very often done I mean he was speaking about people who do make a living said you know you go out into the world you find a, a house near a Yeshiva you come home after your work you go to the yeshiva and you sit there for four hours. So that way you're still in that tutorial framework. And it's a question which you shown should you be reading, which shown shouldn't you be reading, that a shiva is still determining that. You still have the modern comot, you're still sitting in that framework. The only thing is the, the younger people are doing it uh, 12 hours a day, you're doing it three or four hours a night. He did not think that this was a major problem in terms of how one conducts family life. And if he were here, uh, maybe somebody won't ask him exactly how he worked that out. But I, I don't think that he would come here. Uh, obviously what happens, people also want to pursue secular studies, want to read something else. That, that certainly, I think, he had a solution to that, which was don't do it. But it's a coherent solution uh, if you're willing to go that way. It's a conformist solution because it really means you always remain in that position of the student sitting at the feet of the foot of the Rosh Hashiva. There's another solution which uh, I can be accused of having inclinations towards where you essentially do the same thing, but uh, the idea is not just you know, to live next door to Yeshiva, to live next door to a major library. And again, if you, your model of study is doing research, whether it be traditional learning or other things, and the idea is you're supposed to read books and go to the library and check new articles and so on and so forth. So again, you live near the library and that way you're, you always find out what's new, you always see the new books. And you, but again, at a practical level, people don't have time to read all the new books. And uh, not everybody can, again, continue the same lifestyle or pretend to be continuing the same lifestyle, the same problems they indicate before. Even if you're living next to a library, the lack of thoroughness, the lack of follow-up, hastiness, same problems. Third solution for many people is to rely on the internet, which does give you some journals that you otherwise can't get outside of a library. It gives a lot of prepackaged material. But again, it has the same weaknesses that I indicated before. In addition to that, I think there's the, uh, the great weakness uh, that when you're reading stuff off the screen, and I do it myself, and you know, we all do it, uh, you're not really reading carefully. There's a concept uh, in Paul Griffiths, a uh, great Catholic scholar whose specialty is Eastern religion. There's a lot of languages. Uh, and he wrote a book called Religious Reading. And he made the point that religion, and he's speaking here about 
Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, you know, all these religions that he knows about that nobody else knows about, involves an idea of religious reading, which means you don't read for information. You read to experience the text, to interact with the text. And if you're working, you're looking at the, inter- the screen all day, you can force yourself to read something on screen the way you would read a sefer. But you really tend to be thinking in terms of picking up information, reading quickly, grabbing something. You saw all these blogs where people react to things where, which they haven't even read. The equivalent of conversation where people start answering the other person before the person gets a sentence out of his mouth. And now people are doing it in writing. And that's saying we should dispense with it, but as a solution to an educational problem of intellectual growth, spiritual growth, it has a lot of serious weaknesses. Uh, let me make a couple of points. Uh, which might be a practical way of overcoming some of these difficulties. Ways of thinking here. One point starts from where I ended. My last point. Uh, C.S. Lewis faced a somewhat similar problem in one of his writings. He, his problem was not internet versus books, it was Rishonim versus Akronim, so to speak. Uh, the sense that in a classical education you should be reading Shakespeare and Chaucer and Milton, and if we move over a little bit, uh, the Gemara and the Rambam, the Tur and the Rosh and the Ran, but that people like the easy way out where you read books about Shakespeare more than you actually read Shakespeare. It's less demanding. You can skip a little bit more readily. And in learning, you read these books that are sort of digested, which may be very fine books and worthwhile books, and even profound books, but you're not stretching yourself the same way. You're not forcing yourself to deal with a classic which requires line-by-line reading. You're not forcing yourself to get out of your own frame of reference. Uh, Everything is pre-digested. Everything is organized for you. And his advice to his correspondent was, look, I can't tell you don't read modern books. Read only the Rishon. I can't tell you that because you're not going to listen to me and, and maybe you're right not to listen to me. But make yourself a promise. For every two modern books you read, at least read one uh, classical work. Make that time that you're not one kind of reading and I think if we apply that to the internet, this might be a way of resolving that problem.
that you at least make time for what Griffiths called religious reading where you read intensively you don't make those shortcuts don't throw out all the new possibilities but have roots have anchor yourself in, in the more traditional modes of reading as well second point uh, the question of how much does a person actually have to read we're doing great yeah. how much does a person have to read you're younger uh, at least for many of us there's a great desire to cover a lot of ground which when you're young you certainly there's a lot of information out there that you want to get and you you want to get it you want to eat it all up very quickly and you're physically stronger you can go night after night 24 hours you know uh, 18 hours a day you can swallow everything attack everything and if you're going to publish academically then you have to read a lot because uh, and today even if you're a specialist you can't read everything even in your narrow field but you at least try feel from writing an article about something how can I not have read X, Y, and Z you get older and maybe some of those illusions have to be uh, punctured a little bit if you're you have a full daytime job which may be a job in Chinuch it may be that you're not going to publish you're not going to write publishable articles in the same way that those of us who are Zoha uh, to sit in universities and you know Shifti, Bevet, whatever, call you Mechayai. You know, you may have to make peace with that. You know, sometimes I hope I'm not insulting everybody here, but you know, very often I get articles submitted to tradition, intelligent people, and people who want us to be Kovea eating to do things that they're not to give in and give up on their intellectual growth and it's wonderful but in the end what they're going to produce most of the time is not going to be publishable it's not their fault if you think that you really have to and I'm not referring to uh, I'm not referring to you we did publish your piece uh, you know, and letters to the editor and uh, uh, the people, but if you're, even if you're doing that you're not going to do as much as somebody who has the whole day to sit around doing it and getting grants and uh, so on and so forth and knowing yourself may mean understanding that that's not my goal I'm not a graduate student anymore if I ever was and that may mean that your goal is to read less and do it more thoroughly your goal in reading the novels let's say may be not to read that many new things because nobody really cares if you have finished every single novel by Trollope 
And nobody really cares if you have read every important new novel of this year. It may mean that you, you grow more by rereading what you've already read, what you already know. Some people it may be a, it may be a, uh, uh, an act of surrender. In that book, you know, I thought that I would know everything. And now I realize that uh, you know, I can't, every day there's so many new books that are coming out and I can't possibly keep up and I can't even keep up with things I'm interested in. I know for myself, and I do have a shift to debate, uh, you know, whatever, call you Mechayai. Uh, there are areas of philosophy that I don't teach and I mean that I don't really read very much in those areas and year after year when I do want to read in those areas it becomes harder to do it and I say look you know what can I do I, I, my eyes are as big as they always were but it's the human condition you read less but perhaps enjoy it more to turn around the uh, famous commercial about uh, uh, you know, smoking some kind of cigarette where you smoke less and enjoy it more. Uh, and to say the opposite of what I just said a moment ago. A moment ago I was saying maybe you should sort of focus on what you your limitations. But also say that don't give up completely on doing new things. Be realistic and say, well, my project now, uh, I'm going to learn Italian this year. And you start for a week, you're, you're merrily going to grammar, and then the grammar ends up, and, and the literature book ends up being the same place that uh, the exercise bicycle was last year. Uh, but the sense that, again, you, you're not going to come, and again, I don't think that everybody can do what Edmund Wilson did, where if he was interested in the subject, and he was interested in sea scrolls, he learned Hebrew. Uh, later in life, he was interested in something in Hungarian literature, so at the time of his death, he was studying Hungarian. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody has that, that ability or the time, whatever, but uh, the fact that you can't do what you might have thought you could have done in your 18. Does that mean that you have to totally give up and say, whatever I knew before, now all I can do is, is chaz it over and uh, I'll sit home and I reread my old notes from college <coughs> and that's my intellectual life. Uh, I can sum up in effect, I really have two halves of the discussion, and they seem to be about very different things. Uh, both halves really had to do with self-knowledge. One had to do with the way self-knowledge may enable you to think more deeply and to communicate more deeply with other people. The other half was a different, much more pragmatic kind of self-knowledge of knowing how you can budget your time and be meaningful in your use of time for yourself. I 
think the two elements interact. If you fo- work on one, you may find that you're making progress on the other. Uh, some people, uh, this kind of self-insight may be difficult to achieve or difficult to carry through. Uh, but I think it's a lot easier in the alternative of living in kind of either total frustration or total fantasy about what you can do as your life goes on. I'm saying this again both for people who are in the world and even again for people who are in Chinuch who as they get older will be spending more and more time doing the things that they've done all along. You know, doctors who realize that after doing, uh, you know, a hundred, two hundred heart surgery, they can't simply say, well, you know, I think that now I'm going to do brain surgery instead because there's a frontier out there to work for. Uh, People are living within their limitations and, and finding their way. I think it's time to hear from somebody else. supposed to be a respondent. I think a response is an adversarial kind of position. But I don't feel adversarial. I think Rabbi Carmi said uh, many interesting things and left us with ideas worth pondering and developing on our own. I would like to make a few comments in an anecdotal manner. You know, anecdotes are usually stories that you make up. No matter how much you insist that they really happened, the person who was sitting next to you at the time probably saw something very different. So, I will probably never write a biography of a great person. And in this case, I mean not a biography like Archgrove, where everything is shiny and happy, nor a biography like the making of the Guttel, where there's not always discernment between serious and less serious kind of information. Even though I assume that both books serve some purpose for somebody, I personally like the making of the Godel a lot. Uh, (coughs) I'm going to introduce the anecdote by a story. (laughs) The story is based on the way I understand a note written by the Minchat al-Azhar 
which I was reminded of in a review that Rabbi Blau wrote not so long ago but I have to remember Mark Shapiro's book Mark Shapiro's book and according to the reference that Rabbi Blau gave Mark Shapiro also mentioned this uh, letter written by the Minchas Zalazo but since as Rabbi Karmi has pointed out that old people and I see just looking around that I'm certainly in that category here that old people don't get to read everything so I have to admit that I haven't read that book as yet although that hasn't stopped me from talking about it everything's anecdotal so the Mithras Alaza in this letter it is, he wrote, he wrote uh, a lot the Mithras Alaza was kind of the alter ego of the Satma Roth you know, uh, the Ravan Munkach, which when I grew up I thought was like a kind of a comedy, like there's not really a place called Munkach, and then I found out that there was. So he was the Ravan Munkach, he was a great genius, as you can judge by his true vote, many of which are not political. But he used to write these letters all the time about what he thought and what he thought the Jews should do and what they shouldn't do. And in this letter he wrote about the three great evils of our time. Two of them everyone understands are great, li- uh, great evils. The first is Ralph Cook. And I only say Ralph Cook's name because he wrote it in the letter. He said, you might. I wrote another letter in which I was not explicit, but now I'm going to be explicit because I don't want you to make a mistake. The second great evil was the school called Tachkimoni that was started in Warsaw, in which there was a kind of yeshiva and also secular studies. So we understand why that was also a great evil. So personally, I'm not sympathetic with the first two evils that he mentions. But lo and behold, there's a third evil in the Jewish world today, according to the Minchat Salaza. Now what do you think, now I don't want to ask you, <laughs> if you would get it, except for Rabbi Blah who's seen the letter, the third evil is Daf Yomi. <laughs> The third evil is Tafyon. And when you ask the Minchat al what is so evil about Tafyon? So, okay, if you're a social historian and you know something of the background and you know that there was Agure and that was largely made up of Western German-type Jews and Eastern Polish-type Hasidim and therefore it behooved some people in Galicia to be against them on principle, right? I mean, just didn't go together. It wasn't a combination. So, the Mithras Eloza says, it's a plot. Dav Yomi is a plot that was organized by these other Jews who think they know something about something. 
Not those of you know about the Tafyomi know that the Tafyomi was actually organized by people who did know something about something. But the Minchat Alosa was not impressed by that and he argues the case. He says, Tafyomi is the destruction of the Jewish people. How's that? The destruction of the Jewish people. How so? He says, because after all, the greatest pleasure that a Jew can have is learning Torah and trying to understand it. And here the Milchas Elaza was democratic. He didn't say young people. He didn't say old people. He didn't say smart and more brilliant people and less talented people. He said everyone. Everyone. But in order to get the taste of Torah, you've got to learn Torah in a serious way. You've got to learn Rashi, you've got to learn Tosu, you've got to think about it. And while it's true that not everyone is going to have the last word to say on the sugya, he felt that everyone had the opportunity, irrespective of his his native ability or his age to be involved in the experience of Talmud And he said, he says, could you imagine that you're learning Torah, you're learning Gemara, and you've got to get to the end of the page? He says, what's the end of the page? It might be the middle of an issue, it might be just where you don't want to stop and you want to go on and try to understand or if it's a long page you can't deal with the beginning of the page so well so that's the Minchat al who could not be accused of being left winged by any stretch of the imagination now the anecdotal part I'm going to tell the story of my experience in Rabbi Soloveitchik's the story is about me so I don't think anybody can argue with it because I say that that's the story that that's the story but I, I know that not everybody agrees not everybody would say what I said when I came to Rabbi Salavajik Shia I've been looking back on it now I was profoundly unprepared I went to a modern orthodox high school, uh, uh, which I loved. I mean, I loved school, and I loved, but it was very oriented to being clever. You had to do well and get good grades, and, and that's how we learned Gemara. You know, who's the smartest one? You know, who can give me the, the best answer? It wasn't too democratic in that sense. When I went for my Bechina in YU, of course I didn't know too much about anything. And the Bochein, I told the Bochein, we had a group, I told the Bochein that I didn't understand Yiddish, which was not true. <laughs> and that I would have to speak in Hebrew. The Bochein said, okay. And he started speaking, and what he said was Hebrew. <laughs> but I had never heard anything like it in my life. So I just sort of put my head down and chanted on the bit and just read the Gemara the Rashi and kept explaining whatever I knew and he was very impressed with the fact that I ignored him 
So early on, so I got, I got to what they called in why you a higher shear, right? Which, you know, might mean that it was on a higher floor or something. And, and then soon enough, I, I was in Rabbi Soloveitchik's shear because I had a chavrusa who wanted to go, who was actually in Rabbi Soloveitchik's shear, and he decided that he had to bring me there also in order to remain my chavrusa. It says something about the administrative realities. So this is the story. My impression is, and when I came to, I came to this year, it must have been around 1960, so you can figure out how old Rabbi Soloveitchik was, and whether he had grandchildren, and whether he had changed from being a, like a harsher type of person to a more pleasant type of person. But that doesn't interest me. I came to Shia. I didn't know anything about but the Shia was actually very interesting, very easy, so you could fool yourself into thinking that you knew what was going on. And since I didn't have much background, so I did that every day. I mean, I, uh, I, I didn't really know what was being discussed. I only knew what I heard, which is not exactly the same thing. My impression was and I had no background in this, and I had no way of coming to this conclusion, and maybe I didn't come to the conclusion then, but only afterwards, that Rabbi Soloveitchik was not teaching us Torah. That what he was doing was literally an avoda. He was serving the Rebbeinu Shlomo. And for him, being involved in that service on a personal level was something of tremendous weight and importance. And even though, yes, he was teaching us also, it was sort of a privilege that we had. We were able to sit in the room and listen to him do Torah, right? And he did it. And it wasn't because he was young, and it wasn't because he was old. It was because if you believed in the possibility of standing before the Rebbeinu Shalom, it was the only thing to do. So I'm not sure that a person who learns or understands or yearns for the experience of standing before HaKadosh Baruch will naturally look for it in Tefillah, but might not notice that it's really Talmud Torah where the opportunity exists. And that it's true that today Torah has become very much, and this is not a bad thing, but it's become very much knowing about things, knowing how to do them, protecting yourself from your children when they come home from yeshiva for Shabbos, only to tell you what you've been doing wrong, right? You want to have some way of protecting yourself. So you do that. You learn the, the Torah digest that Rabbi Karmi was talking about. It's like self-defense. You could say, oh yeah, but you know, Yeshomrin. And, and you're sort of like on a par. You've achieved parody. But for me, for me, coming from where I came from, which was very modern orthodox, and very non-spiritually or experientially oriented, to see Rabbi Soloveitchik 
uh, literally sweat in sheer to get the pshat. I mean, there was no doubt that he was doing something of ultimate importance. And I'll tell you another anecdote which may not have actually happened, but I imagine that it did. We used to daven mincha after the shear. We used to daven mincha after the shear. The shear used to end at a quarter to three. We daven mincha in the room, in the rub's room. I don't know how they do it today. So then the shear was not so big, and the room was not so big, and somebody, somebody, uh, there were two things about davening mincha. One, we were all standing there ready to daven mincha, and the rub looks around, and he says, who has a sitter? So one of these eager beaver type students, you know, comes running over to the rub and says, here Rebbe, take my sitter. I know it by heart. <laughs> but, that's funny, but, but the, really the point is that the rub wanted a sitter. He probably also knew it by heart, right? <laughs> but he wanted a sitter because this was serious. This was a serious matter. I remember the last year that I was in, in YU, well, we learned Yavamas. And for whatever reason, the, the shiurim that the Rav gave were heroic. Sometimes five hours of shir. This was really difficult. I mean, for us, he, he, he seemed to be fine. But, well, for me, I won't say for us, but for me, I found it really a difficult, a difficult kind of experience. So then afterwards, we would have a mincha, quarter to three, mincha. The Rav would say sometimes, I'm too tired to daven mincha. You imagine, imagine being too tired to daven mincha? Adrabba. I think today most people would agree that davening when you're very tired is the optimal experience. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think all the people who go to the first minyan, the early minyan Shabbos morning do it because they want to daven more. I'm not sure. But for the Rav, it seemed to me, like, you know, can I tell you about 83,000 other times that he davened Mincha? I can't. I tell you this, and this made an impression on me. So I think that, I think that what Yadus offers, what Yadus offers, is the experience of Talmudur. It has rules, it has length, it has width. You can check against what somebody else is doing. It's a wonderful intellectual experience. And, remarkably, in spite of the great geniuses who've involved themselves over the years in Talmud Torah, who've left us a legacy that we, us, I, would never even be able to imagine being part of, nevertheless, Unlike subparticle nuclear physics, where in school they tell you, either you've got it or you haven't got it. And if you haven't got it, then you're gone. It, it's over. I mean, I was a math major in college. That's how it is in math. I mean, nobody cares. Here's the problem. How do you, how are you doing? I oh, can't do it? Okay, go study English or something. <laughs> no, it's like... It, Here's Talmud Torah. I mean, it's an amazing idea. Talmud Torah, very difficult. 
you learn a Tosus. You don't always understand what it says. You know that you don't understand what you say. And then you say, you, the whole tradition says to you, learn it again. Try once more. Get a Chavrusa. Listen to somebody who might know it better. It's absolutely remarkable. Tefillah is more easily understood as being a democratic kind of experience. But after all, Talmud Torah, it's, it's all intellectual. It's all about brain power. But it isn't all about brain power. And years later it occurred to me, years later it occurred to me, when I said to myself once, I went to the Rosh I said, isn't it silly to prepare? What you should do when you go to the Rosh is review. Because you're going to try to figure out what the Gemara says. And the Rav is going to say, better. You say the whole thing better, so why prepare? Just review what the Rav said. But I thought, in time, that this was a bad idea. That the struggle with the text, with the ideas, the, the, the sudden awareness of what there is in Talmud Torah, is something that no one should give up. True, it's important to have someone who can critique what you're doing and what you're saying. But you should not give up the experience of trying to get through the material, as Rabbi Karmi, I think, said. The Rishonim. The Rishonim, because those are the things that everybody has learned since time immemorial. And we can't avoid that kind of a, that kind of experience. So I'm not sure that young and old is the issue. I think the issue is what we're doing, what our purpose is, what our sense of ourselves is. If you think the davening is what we do because of the imminence of the Rebbeinu well, that seems to me to be an exciting opportunity and something worth investing in. If you're learning Torah, because Torah is the Word of God in some way or other, even if I don't understand what I'm saying, when I say it's the word of God. And even if I can't answer the catches that somebody might ask about that. But after all, I have my Rebbe, and he had his Rebbe, and he had his Rebbe. And they were all clever enough. And they all believed that Torah in some way, manner, or form was the word of God. And in that way, they believe further that the investment, the energy, the travail in Talmud Torah was worth it. I think that that's the difference. It has nothing to do with young and old. I think if when kids go to school, if they don't get that, if they don't have a teacher who can convey that message to them, if they don't learn with their parents, learn with their parents, not 
answer those questions on the silly sheets that your children get when they come home for Shabbos. But learn. I always tell people, learn a posuk in the parasha. Any posuk. Learn with your children. The children should see that learning is important for their fathers. What a difference. And their mothers. And their mothers. What a difference. What a difference that make. If, if learning Torah is about knowing the answer to 50 or 60 or 80 questions, it just won't make it in an ultimate in ultimate sense. You'll get tired of it. The child will get tired of it. You'll do something else which is more interesting. But if communication between the parents and their children, what aspect of communication is Talmud Torah? If real communication, I was told this story also, I once went to a, I once went to a cheder. I, uh, like there's a story and a story and a story, but I had to go to a cheder, right? That's not a bad thing so far. You know, Chedorim, they don't know about teaching methodology and they don't know about... But this is a very modern Cheder and the modernity of the Cheder was that the Rebbe showed me that he had colored chalk. <laughs> and that if he wanted to, he could write on the board in different colors, which I was like, I, I went for a different reason. I went to the Cheder for a different reason. So anyway, he's telling me he's very, into my very modern Cheder. So I... I participated. It was Friday. And they were learning Parsha the Shavua. Okay, so the Rebbe said, oh, everybody take a chumash. So I was aghast. They took those old chumashim that they have in shul. You know those chumashim with the yellow pages and, and, uh, and there's a chumash on top and Rashi is very hard to read at the bottom, very unclear. So everybody got one of those. And then the Rebbe, instead of giving an introduction, what's in the parasha, what's about, I'll tell you a few interesting comments, some sidelights, right? The Rebbe. He didn't do that. You know what he did? He started learning Pamai Mikrov Echatargum for himself. Okay, Rebbe said, look, here I am stuck in this class with a bunch of kids. It's not supposed to learn parasha the Shavuot. So I'll learn, I'll, I, have to, I have to go over the parasha. I mean, I myself have to go over the parasha. He went over the parasha. And then I wondered, like how the kids looked at it. Like what was going on? I looked around. They seemed to be interested. They seemed to be interested. And I wondered, what, what do you think the kids were interested in? So my take on it was that the children were watching an adult actually with a beard proof positive and a long black coat even more adult than that and he also had a black hat which he put on for learning Parshat HaShavuah and the kids said to themselves this is the real thing the Rebbe is learning and we are learning with him these kids were six years old they just learned how to read but they were learning Parsha Tashavu so that you have to convey the message from a very young age. The Talmud Torah is very important. It's important to the parents, important to the Rebbe's. And then I think once that message gets, you know, it doesn't make any difference anymore. The age doesn't make a difference. The conviction remains. Uh, the achievement may vary. But 
what difference does it make? You know, it's not achievement based for most people. It's just being part of the enterprise. Tada. There's something that happens when that Baal Bible is out there and maybe only has the time for the 
you don't know me, that in the encounters with life with deeds with people with experience, that's also growth. We haven't that well, that's the threat that I'm thinking about that we didn't that we didn't raise. Um, let's see. And again, a woman I think is a woman who has seen for the first time. There's tremendous intellectual, spiritual, physical, religious growth that is not necessarily connected to digging into the book that may come at another time in her life. And, and the browsers, you know, you were the one that had made that possible for so many women. So those are some of the issues that were kind of floating in my mind when you were speaking, both of you, and that, that I would want to raise. If you have any reactions either to what I said or to what each other said, let's take those first, and then we can take some questions from uh, the audience. Uh, Afterwards, anything you don't have to react to that. There's just a few questions that arose in my mind, uh, or if you want to first initially react to what each other said. Okay, these are you already did that. Brother Kami, did you want did you want to respond to what Brother Brown just said first? Some of the questions arose. I try, or may fail to a certain degree, to find growth in non-maturely intellectual terms. If I fail, because, again, I spend so much time involved in that, and, and most people, the kind of people who want to be here, are pervaded from the Torah, uh, more or less. Uh, I made comments early on in the presentation about the kind of growth that occurs in Tzila, when a person is simply diving and diving very hard, so to speak, with all <coughs> muscular energy. And what Tzila is for a person who has a sick person at home, raised children, older person. Uh, and one difficulty is that I don't know whether that's the kind of growth that a person can contrive. You don't get up in the morning and say, what troubles am I going to bring upon myself that will lead me to grow? And suffering leads to a lot of growth, challenges lead to a lot of growth. Uh, but when people sort of bring these problems upon themselves, uh, they're not growing spiritually, they are growing masculine. And it's a danger wine and uh, order at the end for the time being. Once a person has realized certain things, you go to details of it, it's Christian flavor to it, uh, one may very well say, uh, bring me trouble and temptation for their own sake. That's the only way you can go. And the Lord goes on and says, you don't have to pray for that. You're going to get it. But not quite in the way that you're looking for. That is part of the difference between the person who's actually lived a life and a teenager. When I was a teenager, you know, I really did think you should go out there and you go to the department store of challenges and suiting, and you look in the window, and you pick out, you know, this is really good for growth. Uh, when you actually live, you realize you're challenged in ways that you didn't anticipate. 
there are things where you think of a challenge display, I don't think you wouldn't be able to handle it at all, I don't want to be involved in such a thing, and then when you're challenged, it turns out that you can do things you didn't think you could do. <coughs> and then when you look back after it, you know, after you've had certain experiences, uh, you very slowly realize <coughs> that there's lots of process of thinking that through. But you realize you have done certain kinds of spiritual work. Uh, you have plowed your personality. And at the end, it's actually harsh. So again, if I fail to make that clear enough, it's because A, and we do live our lives very much through thinking, not necessarily through the formal component, thinking, self-examination, and the like. And secondly, because the times when we are growing in other ways, we may not always be aware of it, and where active facts uh, the line that comes to me now uh, uh, John Lennon uh, life is what happens to you when you're expecting something else and that is very much even intellectual life sometimes grow away it's growing but that intersection where life experience and the, the uh, again, the other person has greater intellectual firepower, but experience, things interact, you see things that uh, That's part of what they have learned from it all. Even in Londres, I realize this now, I didn't really realize it before. It's not purely a technical game. There's some kind of living that's going on. Um, I'll take questions from the audience now. Okay. Um, Julian Sinclair. Do you, I think there's uh, a microphone if you need it, otherwise you can just speak a little bit louder. Uh, okay, I'll speak loud until I get my question. Okay. Um, very, very thought-provoking talks for both of my Carmi and Rabbi Goffin a lot. Still trying to work with it. But I'd like to address a question to Rabbi Carmi uh, following up one of uh, Professor Hanson's points. Um, it seemed to me that, that the majority of uh, Rabbi Carmi's talk is dealing with a situation of a person who has used to have a lot of time for learning and reading, and now has a little bit less time than they used to, but still quite a lot of time. And it's clear that many of us, and probably many of us, I mean them too, are not in that blessed situation. And when, when I think of, of students who I've had and what they're doing now, most of them are living insane lives, uh, working 12, 14 hours a day as management consultants, as bankers, as doctors, and um, trading for whatever they do, and yet still have a desire to, some, to fulfill a vote of Hashem in, in the few minutes that they have to commit to that each day. 
Or, or I think of women who have different variations of problems. Or the question where they went to school in Shabbat and Severance, where the possibilities of learning, learning Gemara in a serious way were open up to them. And takes number of kids and a part of all that high and Gemara, learning Gemara is, 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 is an impossibility and yet they want to find Gemara in their laundry pile somewhere that's the title of the series of Shirin which I saw with had so, so the question is well how do we bridge what are perhaps the necessarily elitist model of education of the yeshiva and the, and the academy uh, uh, with, with the reality of most of our students' lives, most modern Orthodox students today, where we're realizing that this ideal of our playing in Yeshiva and the Academy is simply impossible. What do we have to offer them about continuing spiritual growth and about that share in the very limited time that they have? Is it, is it sheer massacre that they've chosen those lives and you know, good luck to them, or, or, or can we take responsibility for offering them spiritual support? <coughs> uh, if we're talking about Tomal Torah, then it, to use your phrase, it's simply impossible. What impossible really means is no option. Uh, if you mean not impossible but very difficult, then that's a different story. And the question really is, you know, how does one construct a life uh, example I gave earlier is in terms of learning Gemara, where to do it properly, as my experience is, that uh, if, you know, sometimes I am very preoccupied doing writing and doing other things. You work on a Sylvia, if you don't put in a substantial amount of time, then you lose track. You, you it's not that you don't have time at all. You're not able to follow through, and then it becomes tasteless, it becomes empty, and it becomes frustrating. So the question is, how realistically can one pursue that? I think one issue is, again, if the model is that you have to be doing through life exactly what was done in Shia, then you wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, one practical matter is, and it's something that I advise people, sometimes they actually listen to me, people are going into medical school. And that is certainly a situation where for years you are under heavy time pressure. And what you should tell people is, do at least two things a day. One thing that is in halacha, and one thing that is in something else. If halacha means that you have time to learn Gemara, wonderful. If it means you have time to seriously read uh, a passage in Aruch HaShulchan, again, you're involved, you're alive. And you're doing something where you don't need to have involvement to maintain the follow-up and so forth. You do something not in halacha, and you're trying to sit and Take a long gamban and break your head over it. Good. If not, then you find something else where you can have five minutes, you're able to do something with a certain degree of eel, a certain degree of energy, which is not shallow, and it's 
not learning Gemara, but it's you know it's learning about Hashulchan. But learning about Hashulchan is not it's not showing, but it's an Akron builds and showing as opposed to reading uh, some digest. Well, you know this guy says this and this guy says that, and you you take. Uh, you take five sheep out and, you, and somebody helps you put them in cubby holes and then you're done with the day. Um, I mean, I, and I've been closer to having that experience myself. When, when you're very pressured and you're undoing, you're missing something. This is a very interesting written question. Rakami, your practical suggestions for growth were very refreshing. You mentioned reading classics. What classics would you recommend for post-Yeshiva religious spiritual growth? We just took our Rambam and Gemara now, on the other side. The first one to grow through literature. I can help out here. You were talking about the secular literature? Classics. Uh, the person who asked the question here, I think, he, I think that the person meant he talked about uh, the C.S. Lewis and, you know, he said the debate should be Chaucer or the Ahram and all that. The person who asked the, wrote the question here, did you mean secular classics or, or traditional religious? Torah classics? Okay. What Torah classics? So did he just answer? Would you like him to proceed with that? I kind of would like to ask also what about the secular religion, poetry stuff? How about, would you, you know, that person who has the five minutes uh, or and just the tough folks that can speak to them? Could you recommend some uh, other life? You're talking about you know, most of them or something like that. I think it depends on the person. Uh, I think it's important for people to make the effort to try to find what uh, what speaks to them may be cliche, but to some to actually look for something that may not speak to you but shocks you in certain ways. Or to say something that nobody, very few people here would think about. What, what is that for you? What are you uh, looking at? People will not necessarily think about. And I don't know if I want to do it in quantity, but very often, if I pick up the various letters in my mind of Simchazisul Kel, if you sit down and you read a lot of it, at some point, then, you know, you, you lose interest. But very often, if you sit down, you read one page there, and you, but you read it with attention. You read it as if there's actually conversation going on. I think this can be excellent listed. Precisely, the Times is trying to be clever. It doesn't always work. But the Times is just trying to talk about life. If you're willing to meet him halfway, other question from the audience? Uh, one more on the card here. Anybody out there want to add something? This one on the card, that Carmen Lossi, you spoke about the individual's approach after leaving yeshiva. What, how should institutions gear their curriculum, this is an institutional as opposed to an individual question, to, writ, to empower students from learning their after, their, after leaving their hallowed hall, isn't it the yeshiva's role? So that's a very interesting institutional question, aside from one person. Oh, this is very subjective, and I hope that uh, this gets back to New York. I hope it doesn't burn my bridges in places. Uh, at uh, 
Shiva, I learned him, you learned him. <coughs> Shiva is supposed to be Shiva five days a week. And some of them are four days a week. And, uh, okay, three days a week. Uh, and the standard structure would be that Shiva is going out here and throwing fastball five days a week. Uh, leaving aside the fact that I don't know how many Tumi can actually give the high level Shia five days a week. Uh, leaving aside that I, and I can mention some people alive today, either their, their organization is tremendous or their culture is tremendous and they can actually go out and answer day to it. I think many might necessarily maintain that level every single day which is their problem. But I think some of that time perhaps could be used to looking at other models. It may be important for a Talmud and Yeshiva not just to know how his Rebbe gives a great Iyun Shiv, but how does his Rebbe prepare something new? How does his Rebbe learn Bikyut? Bikyut is not simply learning the Iyun uh, with, the, with the pace speeded up and uh, the voice, uh, you know, like chipmunks. And, uh, it means there's a certain way of doing it. There's a knack of doing what you gain from experience. Uh, what kind of reference works? And, and I, I'm afraid to uh, be critical of people who are most important to the but I, I was in, 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 uh, in Shia. The idea that a person should use his peritone with it was uh, after you do the sugya and you're cleaning up and you're thinking maybe there's some source that you missed, so then you, you really should be sitting there and struggling through every, and looking at this book and that book and earning it all on your own. Uh, if you're in Shia and you're preparing for several hours for Shia and whatever you miss, the Rebbe is going to fill in for you. That's one thing. If you have the half hour, the hour a day, and I don't know how much time you're talking about. And as I said a few times, you get older or you're more distracted, you don't have the thoroughness, you lose track. It's so frustrating. You work on something and the next day you can't work on it and the day after, uh, if it's Tanakh, I pick it up right away because that's what for a living. Shabbat. But if it's something that's not my usual thing, Gemara that I don't need for my Parnassus, so to speak, and you come back a couple days later, and it's as if you hadn't seen it, if you don't learn how to use this Kedekamur, if you use these overviews, then it's not that, well, you're really working hard, you're working to eel, as opposed to being superficial. You don't have enough on the table to be able to get traction. And those are things I think should be taken out of the closet and discussed out of the open that people can think ahead. When we're sitting in Shiva, they can start asking themselves, well, how exactly will I conduct myself if I didn't have the rest? If I have to get a quick overview, enough to learn a little bit beyond but not, I really don't have the time to build it up 
scratch and to that experience of struggle that the Prabhupada spoke about is very important and there are times where I may not have understood what I was doing in the Shia, but the experience of watching him struggle will stay with me and if I need to know what was discussed in the Shia, I may have to go and ask Roy Reichman, who was the grading assistant then for his notes. But the question of the derech, I learned the derech not by getting all the information that I was giving or not by memorizing Roy Reichman's notes. I got the derech even in those moments where I wasn't uh, grasping everything that was going on. Uh, that's very, very important. It's experience you have to keep with you all the time, but you also have to know how to make those shortcuts that enable you to make produce a time. If you're running a shiva, I'm going to say, you want five shiurim a week, two shiurim should be be'iyun, and the other days, Rebbe should be helping you with your helping you think about issues of that sort, about how to learn to be cute, how to do this and to do that. And as it is now, students very often will go to the Rebbe, will ask for advice in these areas. Uh, but it's not really built into the system that way. And I, I may be getting into trouble saying this, but uh, I said it. Okay, we're about to conclude. I just want to, I think the question was very important because as you began to talk, you see the problems of the institutional curricular structure of yeshiva isn't addressing and I think the question was saying not just what again it's not an individual Rav Talmud issue, it's an institutional collective issue. Which you know I, as a professor now I guess I'm I didn't realize, you know, I thought, well I get my PhD, I'm gonna do my dissertation on this subject and that's gonna be it. And then I get to a point where that starts to bore you. You get your tenure, you get your first book, and you don't know what you're gonna do anymore. You can't you can't go back and nobody ever prepared me to say, okay, this is how you this is what you do in the second stage of your career. It wasn't inbuilt into the university or the academic system that we were thinking about how we move on. We're kind of all floundering around. And you go into this period of nothingness, which you think is how growth actually occurs. You know, it's, it's binyan for ban binyan, like, like the Beit HaMikdash, the seed, the, to use the Hasidic metaphor, the seed has to disintegrate in the ground before something new comes. But nobody, the nothingness in the middle, and we talked about that. But nobody told me that. And I think you all keep it to yourself. Okay. Well, everybody seems to be having their research project. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Until I find it again, and I have to find it again, and I have to find it again. But nobody ever talked about it. It was kind of taboo. You're always supposed to be, you know, learning. But the question how Alphabet, how, how the university, and this is a good question, how in or school should talk about, talk about these designations and then integrate it into a curriculum. Not just to have contact with the vote ring afterwards. Here it is a little, you know, sure for you to listen to, but here's the process. What, making it part of the schooling doesn't just end when you leave. I think it's a very interesting, provocative question for all of you who are educators and principals to think about. Um, I want to thank you both and thank everybody for coming. And there's lots more to think about this. And Rabbi Carney's Parsha Shewer, speaking about wearing the Parsha. It will be in English tomorrow at 8 p.m. at Hotel Nahama, which is on Three Cold Chopin. And the books are still for sale upstairs, and there's still refreshments. And there's going to be Mario at the entrance hall. Where is Bethany, Jeff? Alcove, right?
the alcohol, for those of you who need to dive in my is the alcohol right out here, um, right now, right Jeff? <coughs> okay, thank you very much. And, um,